Hi there and welcome. This podcast chronicles my travels around the state of Ohio in the year leading up to the 2020 presidential election, interviewing my fellow Buckeye voters, hearing their stories, their hopes and their fears, their worries and concerns, and learning how those things influence how they're thinking politically as we head into another presidential election. My name is Pete Brown, and this is Ohio 2020. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to This is Ohio 2020. I want to thank everybody who's listened to the first two episodes and has subscribed to the podcast. We're doing quite well. And if you're liking the show, please share it with a friend, tell a friend about it, let your social networks know, or leave us a review on iTunes. I'm excited to get to today's episode. It's the first voter interview that we did, and it's the first voter interview podcast that's coming out. But before we get to it, I want to talk about this past fall, while we were still in pre-production for this entire project and talking through how it might work, we spent a good deal of time wondering how we were going to get people to be a part of a project that's one part podcast, one part film, and is something that really needs to discover itself as it goes along. And it seemed like those first few interviews we did would be critical because essentially we'd be asking people to take part in a project that had zero online presence. You know, there's no other episodes for them to check out. We're basically asking people to participate as sort of a leap of faith. So when we started talking about contacts we might reach out to, that's when I thought of Stormy. Stormy is one of the many nicknames for Desmond Jones a Columbus area photographer, cinematographer, director, and content creator. He runs his own production house in town called Eye of Storm Productions. Our paths crossed back in 2012-2013 when we both participated on separate teams for the 48-hour film project here in Columbus. If you don't know what that is, 48-hour film project are short film competitions that are held all over the world in which your team is given a genre, a prop, and a line of dialogue, and then you have 48 hours to conceive, shoot, and edit a 5-7 to minute short film. As you can imagine, they can get crazy. They are a lot of fun to do, and and it can result in some truly loopy filmmaking. I really enjoyed the years I participated, although as both Desmond and I are now nearing 50, we seem to agree that they might be a younger person's game. Not a lot of sleep in those 48 hours. But I also thought, who better to give me the benefit of the doubt for an interview than a fellow filmmaker who knows what it's like trying to get projects like this off the ground. And Desmond is a guy, as this interview will show, who just keeps moving forward in his work, in his life, in production. Tough things have happened to him in his life, which you'll hear about. But he always seems to find a way to move past them and pursue his passions. The week that I reached out to Desmond on Facebook, he had just found and digitized a VHS tape of him as a young man performing a poem on the TV program Showtime at the Apollo. He had posted it to Facebook, and in his own words, it really took off. Lots of comments and messages came in, and so he naturally thought I had seen the poem and then reached out. But in truth, I was reaching out anyway. But once I saw him perform the poem, I knew it was going to be a big part of our interview. I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that when I saw the video, I made the assumption that he had written the poem about his own life. I want to say that's because his performance is unbelievably good, and not because of any of my own personal biases. I'll leave that to you to judge. He performs the entire poem again for us here, and I'll post a link to his original performance in the show notes for this episode. 
back. The first half of today's podcast walks us through Desmond's story and how he got on the Apollo. And then we segue into talking about what he's thinking and feeling about as the 2020 election looms. As I mentioned, this was the very first interview we did. And now as we roll into the double digits for interviews, there's a lot in here that I might choose to do differently. But overall, I think the episode, as they say, holds up. Just a couple of quick context notes. The day that I interviewed Desmond was September 24th. Our interview happened just a few hours after Nancy Pelosi announced the start of an impeachment inquiry into the current president. So that was definitely on our minds as we talked. Also, you'll hear Desmond refer to Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, who as a young attorney helped his family out back when she was still Stephanie Tubbs. She would go on to represent Cleveland's 11th Congressional District for 10 years. She was the first African-American woman from Ohio to be elected to Congress, and she served as a co-chairwoman of the DNC before she passed away in 2008. Okay, here's my talk with Desmond Stormy Jones, which we're calling That's Not My Name. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And I remember kindergarten. I think those were my earliest memories of sure. um, going to uh, walk in the school. My mother would walk me part of the way, and then I'd walk the rest of the way. Maybe that was first grade. I can't remember, but that far back. I always had a nice affinity for my teachers because mm-hmm. um, I remember always being by their side. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we teacher's pet or whatever. My mother and them told me I used to cry a lot. You know, felt like I was a bad kid in school. But I uh, grew up in, in Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Public Schools at first. And then my parents decided to send, uh, I'm one of four okay. in the middle. One boy, one girl, three boys, and I'm in the middle. And uh, my parents decided to send us to Catholic school. So I went to St. Catherine's and Mount Pleasant. And um, <clears throat> I remember the the there was some kind of bond issue or something at the Catholic school. And the people came to... to, sh- to <laughs> That's okay. Stephanie Tubbs Jones ended up representing my mother because the Catholic school went up on their tuition. Oh, I see. And my mother and them had to hold this out for a week, but uh, she was just Stephanie Tubbs then. Right. And um, she helped my parents negotiate a settlement with the school, and right. we went back to so school. Then you can go back. After Cleveland, after the public private school we went to um, we moved to East Cleveland yeah. I started in the seventh grade at Kirk and um, East Cleveland schools this is Pete stepping out of the interview one of my biases will show up in this next bit of conversation because just as I thought Desmond's poem was about him I also assumed that the East Cleveland he grew up in was the same one that is now plagued by crime and corruption so bad that it was featured in several episodes of the Serial Podcast, Season 3. East Cleveland Schools, and it was it was the bomb at that time, yeah. because, you know, East Cleveland had cable before Cleveland did. Yeah. And it's, I just remember the grass being green and high in a nice, respectable kind of way, and just, you know, all kinds of potential and good feelings and neighborly neighbor stuff, and neighbors talk to each other and stuff like that. And... Um, pretty much stayed in East Cleveland until my senior year. 
What was it like being a kid there in East Cleveland? What What did you do for fun? <laughs> you know, my mother was a, a church churchgoer. <laughs> and uh, I think we went to church like four or five days out of the week. Oh, yeah. And that was mandatory. And uh, so I had a lot of memories growing up in church. And, you know, church-related things were fun. And, and um, but... Uh, but being at Shaw, you know, what they was considered a fashion high school, but they had so many different activities, archery and sports and things like that. But I never got into sports. I, I got into theater and uh, speech and debate. And uh, I don't know I, what I did for fun. I used to write. I used to create a lot of stuff, you know, with paint that was around the house on painting on people's clothes and charging them for it and writing poems, love poems for couples or people and uh, and taking photography. I, I used to spend my allowance every two weeks developing film from pictures I had taken the week before. Now, you might be inclined to give me a pass for having assumed that Desmond grew up in a much meaner version of East Cleveland rather than the bucolic one that he's describing here, but I don't think you should. I mean, Desmond and I have a lot in common from our childhoods. We were both creative kids, and that feeling he describes of saving up your money so you could buy a roll of film or have some film processed, that's right out of my childhood as well. But the thing is, we grew up on opposite sides of Cleveland. I grew up in a suburb called Westlake, and he grew up in East Cleveland, and that difference is going to have a dramatic impact on our lives. Let's step back into the interview, where I've just asked Desmond if there was someone who saw how creative he was as a kid and helped nurture and support that creativity. Supported that? The theater, yes. Yes. Um... oratorical contest in church started the the performing in front of people and um, photography I don't know I just used to like Ebony magazine and things of that sort and I'd look at an image and even to this day I'm like show me a shot video or photo if I can see the shot I can I can duplicate it or build on it and uh, I remember wanting to take pictures like magazine stuff and um, in speech and debate before I did theater uh, my first piece was called Of Mice and Men and uh, and I specialized in dramatic interpretation every Saturday we would go to a different school and we'd be a lot of times the only all black school at these competitions all throughout Ohio at this point I decided just to ask Desmond what I was wondering about Namely, the East Cleveland that you hear about now is a rough, tough place that's fallen on hard, hard times. And it's such a very different picture than what he's describing as he tells me about his childhood. So, as inarticulate as the question might be, I pretty much just asked, what the hell happened? No, it it got bad. I remember leaving to go for lunch one day and which was a common thing. Sue's subsidy was right there on Taylor and Euclid. 
And one of the security guards who knew my father, who had a security company as well, he said, Desmond, go back to school, go back to school. We, they're doing a raid. And, and I'm like, what? And then next thing I know, that, that evening, they were like, there was a raid in East Cleveland. Uh, they found so many out things are cracking. I'm like, what is this crack stuff? And uh, so while I got there, we got there, it was nice. And then it just seemed like overnight, just crack flooded it because it's only three and a half miles long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it it got scarier from there. Yeah. But when we graduated, you know, we weren't, you know, it wasn't like Crackhead City or anything like that. It was still a nice, good place to be from. I, I wanted to go to college, but I, I applied for, I kept applying for this job at Ohio Dairy Farmers. It was right up at the top of Mayfield and this Cleveland Heights Police Department now. But I, I would work these little odd jobs but I'd go once a month and put in an application and they finally gave me a job and uh, I got my first check and it was like $600 and I was like man this is what I need to go to college for I'm making all this money here and um, little did I know uh, that I'd end up sitting at the NAACP because some of the things they were doing to me there because I was like one of few blacks and I know I was for a fact I was the only person there with a high school diploma but there were career workers there who were there and felt some kind of way about us and uh, I remember one time coming in from for lunch and they had taped a big spade out of the pain dealer they stapled it to my locker and I remember taking it down folding it up calling the NAACP and then they was like take notes take notes take notes and I took notes after notes and some stuff you know 18 19 years old this is happening and like wow was um, that your first experience with something that was that blatantly racist I had some more but they were they were not like that my my because that seems like some some real in-your-face racism there. Yes, yes, and um, and I complained about it, but nothing ever really happened. But there was a time before all of that when we were just growing up in EC. Uh, down in Collinwood, there was a whites-only pool, oh, really? and I had an aunt who stayed a couple streets over there, and my family would go over there and visit from time to time, and we wanted to go to the pool one day, and I remember my aunt saying, no, you can go to any pool, but you can't go to that one. That's whites-only, and I remember us when we got BMXs, and we would ride down there to see her, but then we rolled down a couple of them streets, and then people started throwing stuff at us, and one time, one the guy threw a bat, and my brother ducked, and it hit a pole and split and it's like yeah it was so you know stuff like that yeah. before the uh hillside dairy thing happened yeah. um yeah those are like so music. so you had experience yes so at this point desmond has a good job it pays well but at the suggestion of the NAACP, he's also having to document the different ways he's experiencing racism at work and i'm someone who's always proud to say i'm from cleveland I love my hometown. I'm so quick to extol it as a progressive and forward-thinking town. You know, but maybe that's only true if you're lucky enough to grow up in Westlake, where my biggest complaint in my first job was when I'd only get tipped a dime for loading groceries into someone's car. I wondered how long Desmond stayed at that job, and if things got any better for him there. Uh, about nine, ten months, something like that. Did it get any better? He, no. 
<laughs> I think what they do like with whistleblowers now, <laughs> they kind of move you away from general population yeah. so that you're doing just some other specific job. Okay. Uh, but it, it did get better, but I ended up uh, quitting. Um, yeah, I ended up quitting, moving on the other side of town, and uh, then I started into doing hospitality, uh, yeah. the hotels and stuff like that. And that's where I met Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh my goodness. Um, the, I took her, the, the room service to the, her room and I didn't know who she was until afterwards, but I took, took her, her stuff to the room, Aretha Franklin. And I mean, it's like everybody stayed there. Uh, Michael Jackson, when they were on tour, they stayed there. Uh, Michael Jordan with the shot, <laughs> they yeah. were staying there. Yeah. I was working there when they stayed there. I mean, when they were staying there for that game, for the series. And um... Just a quick note, if you're not from Ohio or Cleveland or you're not a sports fan, in 1989, a very good Cleveland Cavaliers team had high hopes heading into the NBA playoffs and are very much championship-starved city was eager to see the Cavs make a run at an NBA title. But in the best of five first round series against the Chicago Bulls, led by a young Michael Jordan, a team that the Cavs had swept in six regular season games, well, they put up more of a fight than anyone expected, tied the series up at two games each, and in the final game, with the Cavs up by one point and three seconds on the clock, Chicago had to inbound the ball. ball. Sellers will inbound. has Jordan. Jordan with two seconds to go. Puts it up and scores at the buzzer. Michael Jordan has won it for Chicago. Clevelanders who are watching still see this shot in their dreams. Jordan, moving to the left, rises up and over the Cavs' Craig Elo, and he sinks one of his most memorable clutch game winners in his career. The shot immediately became a new entry into the liturgy of miserable moments in Cleveland sports history. So Desmond mentioning his connection to it here is completely understandable. After high school, I was like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be doing any acting or anything like that. I'm just going to be a regular guy, going to get a job somewhere. And like I said, my father always had his, I always, he had his private security company. And uh, when he would do private investigation, I was the, the camera guru guy and we drove to New York, um, to buy the AL1 when it first came out. And yeah. I would, we would go on little stakeouts and, and I don't know what it is about Valentine's Day and Sweetie's Day, but everybody wants their spouse followed <laughs> and phones tapped. And then I started working for my father, doing the private security, working my way up in the ranks and. Were you living in your own place in Cleveland at this time? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I stayed in Cleveland Heights. I was bougie. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, uh, I don't, I always wanted to, even when I didn't have a car, I would just stay in Cleveland Heights because I liked the neighborhood and, you know, I uh, wanted my stuff to be safe or yeah. whatever and whatnot. But, and, uh, while we went to New York to the, do the, um, to get that camera, we were there for a week and he's like, let's go to the Apollo. And, we went to the Apollo and I would have never guessed I'd ever been on the show yeah. or been there, but I remember going while we were in New York that time. And so you're uh, what, 19, 20 years old around? Yeah, about, yeah, 20, 21 ish. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I was engaged to a police officer at the time mm-hmm. and we're Facebook friends too. Um, <laughs> she, 
I used to write I'm her poems all the time. No, I'm not married to her now. <laughs> um, I used to write her a lot of poems and poetry because that was just what I, I did. And I remember her giving me the poems back sometimes and some corrections and and her telling me, you know, why don't you, you know, grow up and learn how to use your voice and and stop writing everything down. And and it kind of I'm like, OK, well, you know, yeah, she writes, she writes. And I just stopped writing poetry and and tried to make this thing work with her. But then she wanted to move to Atlanta. I just remember stop writing. I stopped writing poetry. I'm like, OK, I'll put it down. And uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Ed Alex. He still works for East Cleveland City Schools. And just out of the blue, he called me. He said, hey, can you come and do a poem for the new class of students at Shaw High School? And I was like, man, I haven't written in a while. And uh, I went and I wrote something, uh, how to be a man of color with no money down. And I did that a couple of days later. They found some grant to hire me at the school yeah. and uh, for the upcoming school year. And I went and I was working there. And one of my older teachers, one of my old teachers, I was she was in charge of the department that I was working in where they got the grant money to hire me. And uh, we were talking about she was like, you know, these are the. These are the kids of the crackheads. And she's like, they all got skinny bodies, this, that, and the other. And I was like, wow. Um, and, but I, when he asked me to start to write the poem, I wrote the poem and then got back into writing. Yeah. And, and did the whole poetry circuit every night, Saturday, Sunday night. It was here. It was Saturday. It was here. Friday, wherever it was. I was performing yeah. on this run with, um, with this poetry. And uh, there was a black poetic society in Columbus, in Cleveland, that was the big poetry thing. And you had to be selected to be in their group. And I remember going to places and I was like making a name for myself and then get to open mic. And then, OK, you sign your name on the list. And then as soon as it gets to my name, OK, we're going to bring up the feature. And if we got time left, we'll bring up the rest of you finish the list type of thing. And that went on for like some months. And I'm like, why is it? Oh, I'm like, OK. And then there was another guy from Cleveland, a guy who was on the Apollo from Cleveland named the Boogeyman. And so I stayed up to watch it. And I'm like, "Ooh, wow. Wow. And um I went, to, I met him, searched him out, and then we started like performing in different places together. But everybody like was, oh, cause he was only Apollo and he won and he yeah. won and he won. And so, um, I was just like, okay, well, I'm good enough to be on Apollo. But so I started sending in the tapes and you know, you freeze the video, VCR taped it and then you write the address down at one time, but then you put it on VHS. Send it out. And my father had the L1, so it was like, I know the quality is there. Yeah. I just need to get something that'll catch their eyes. And uh that went on for a year, sending tapes. And uh, I finally, something happened with the boogeyman with the Apollo. They got him under a contract, and Lionel Richie talked him out of his contract. And so they were like, hey, how would you like to be on the Apollo? Well, tell me what the boogeyman is up to. When's the last time you talked to him? What is he talking about? And I'm like, yeah, I saw him Sunday. And da, 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 da. I'm like, it was more so about keeping tabs on him than right. me getting on the show. <clears throat> and then some other lady from Cleveland got on there, uh, got had a poetry slam, was in it and won it. 
Boogeyman was the judge. She was on the show. She won it. And then after she won, she announced she was going to be on Showtime at the Apollo in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, wait, she been asking me and following right. up with me about him. And now you going to let her on? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I was just through with him. And, yeah. uh, but then, uh, some months and times went by. I was performing in Glenville. Some little boy ran up and after I finished performing, all these kids were like filling my poetry. But this little boy ran up and he hugged my leg. And I said, what's up, little man? And uh, one of the kids said, get off of him, CB. And then they all started CB, CB, CB. And the little boy took off running down the street. Look, crying or whatever. He just let go of my leg and took off running. I'm like, what does CB mean? They was like, crack baby and started laughing and stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow. And it, it just, I remember them running down the street, uh, like an outcast. And I remember sitting down and writing that poem. My, and the, my sister went into labor that same evening. Yeah. So I went out to the hospital and that was the first time I'd seen a baby born. Yeah was my niece and I, I talked to the nurses and them about what I saw earlier that day and they took me back into the NICU to show me a baby that was born addicted to it and you know they was like it's not really any long-term effects and and stuff like that and I was like wow wow and I, and it just my mind I would get hooked on something and I just want to write and write and write and write and so I took some of what she said um the, the nurse said, I took some of the stuff Miss Boyd, it was my teacher, um, boss, said, and, and put some of my church upbringing into it as far as scriptures. And so I had the little, one of the boys I knew who was there laughing at him, go get that little boy. And when the little boy came, this guy came with him. Yeah. And I remember telling him, I'm like, I wrote this poem, and I don't care what nobody tells you. If it's not your name, you tell him that's not my name. And don't you give him, don't pay any attention to him, but don't let it get to you if that's not your name. Yeah. The little boy was just like quiet, like he couldn't believe he, yeah. I thought he thought I was going to just like make fun of him being a crack baby or something, but he was just quiet. And the guy said, man, that make me not want to serve crack no more. And I'm like, wow, wow. And so I, I left there. And Monday, I called the Apollo on my lunch break from show because I was back at work in the show. And and I just left it how I wrote it on the voicemail. And two days later, so they performed it over the phone, over the phone into their voicemail. Two days later, they called back from the phone. I called from at Shaw and Miss Boyd was like, these people um or on the phone they said it's showtime at the apollo and i was across the hall so i went back over there and she said uh desmond oh my goodness that that poem you left that is a message can you be here in two weeks to be on the show we're taping in two weeks can you be here i'm like yes yes i can and and i hung up the phone and and the whole class was like what i'm like they're gonna let me be on showtime at the apollo and, uh, and, which, yeah, she also said cut the poem down to a minute and 30 seconds yeah. and be there in two weeks. How much of it do you remember now? I, I remember it all now. It's, I, this video is taking back off and it's like, yeah. wow. Um, I remember a lot of it. Can you give us just a little bit of it? Hmm. Don't call me that because that's not my name. I didn't have a voice 
or a choice on how I came into this world. At a time when all the odds for survival were stacked against me, I didn't know nothing about my mommy or daddy. I was too busy withdrawing off of this substance that was forced onto me. I was told when I was born that I couldn't even cry. But out of my mouth, they say, came the shrill that would have brought tears to any human's eyes who knew what I just came through. But what was I supposed to do? Just die? Fighting toxins as poison that attacked my prenatal growth to coming out with IVs and STDs and hoses and cords going down my throat. They wouldn't put me by the window with the rest of the babies. Neonatal intensive care is where they placed me because I was given a habit before I was given a name or even the chance to grow to a full term weight proportion. But they say I measured in one inch and two breaths away from being shipped over to the coroners. But I was born. And just like you each day, I live that much longer than the substance in that crack pipe did. Now, I'm not asking for you to feel sorry for me. But if you don't want to walk, talk or play with me, just don't label me that crack baby because crack didn't make me. Wow, that's amazing. Now, I've watched the video of Desmond's original performance of the poem on the Apollo, and it's very moving. Desmond so fully embodies the character that he's writing about, and he performs it with passion and anger, and it really fires the crowd up. People are jumping out of their seats while he's doing it. And again, check our show notes for a link to his performance. And Showtime at the Apollo is a competition show, and Desmond won two weeks in a row. Yes, yes, yeah, I won, won two weeks in a row. You're getting choked up now just having done it. Yes, yes. It was interesting. I admitted to Desmond that when I first watched the poem be performed, I thought he had written it about his own life. And he told me this reaction was not all that unusual. And and, and it, it 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 bothered me because my mother told me back in kindergarten, you know, I was like, people keep calling me Desmond and, yeah. and whatever but my name. And she yeah. was like, you tell them that's not my name. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of stuck. And then I always remembered that little boy, how he ran down the street from them saying CBCB. Yeah. And, and then before, between that two weeks, I'm like, mommy, I'm about to go do this show, yeah. do this poem called that's not my name yeah. and um when i was on the show with steve harvey they just called it crack baby yeah. and that's why he said i don't even know what you're gonna do yeah. he didn't want to read <laughs> crack baby <laughs> he's like i don't even know what you do tell us what that is um so i i told her i'm like i don't i don't people might think that you were smoking drugs yeah. smoking crack yeah. when we were growing up but right. we were that was before i was the our us being born type thing and she was like you know what is and i read the poem to her and she was like as long as god get the glory you you know i don't care what nobody think about me but i was like mommy i'm gonna do yeah. this poem so you were worried people were gonna say oh yeah your mother was doing sure. drugs not june not the church yeah. june yes um yeah yeah well because you performed it so well that you know i was watching going this had to be his life but I'm like, if these people in Cleveland aren't going to respect me until I get on the Apollo, yeah. this is the first time I'm getting on here. I'm, I, I'm <clears throat> at least I could say I was on the show and I didn't anticipate the win. Uh, but listening to what I'm saying and how I said it, it's like, wow, 
I, it's 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 I, I I took the right parts out and I took the I left the right, right. parts right. in and it it just worked out. But they did get mad at me at the Apollo because I went over a minute and thirty seconds. You know, I get the sense talking to you. We talked for a while about some of Desmond's other gigs as an opening act on a book tour and directing some teenage theater productions, which ultimately is what brought him down to Columbus. And at one point, he tells me about a house fire that burned up all of his journals, years of writing. But in typical fashion, he just kept on writing. I told Desmond that I get the sense he's one of those guys that has hard things happen to him in life, but he just keeps moving forward. He just keeps figuring out a way to move on with what he's got going. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful there were a lot of opportunities that uh, created themselves from from a lot of different things i used to like to do as a child or as a young man um like with photography it's just like i'm always finding these different things that wow okay now you're doing this and wow and now oh, i can do that and let me try that and then when this whole 48 hour film yeah. thing i got an email from a lady i directed a play here the lady who writes lights and sound, Miss Linda, yeah. she sent me an email, said, hey, this 48 hour film festival thing is coming up and you should do you should try out. You should try it. And I'm like, OK. Desmond was the first interview we did for this project. So my pivot into asking about politics was less than graceful. How do you describe yourself politically? I am. I would say I was democratic, <laughs> but as of late, that I don't even know what that means because they 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 tend to. And I, I know after 2016, I I was a Democrat. Okay, I'm a Democrat or was it? Sure. I vote Democrat, but I was so outdone at how they did Obama. But this 2016 election, I remember going to the voting polls and there were people in 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 wheelchairs with oxygen tanks and some of them just shy of a stretcher lined up to vote. And and I was like, you know what this and I called it while the polls were still open. I'm like, Trump is about to win this election, y'all. And I, I just out of nowhere because it just seemed like nobody was fighting. He was just I'm going to be the loudest talker. So I said after 2016, I'm just going to be an independent. And one of y'all going to have to make me pick a side. But it definitely wasn't going to be for Trump. Yeah. I think I think people who aren't from Ohio don't understand what it's like during a presidential election here. Because hmm. both parties spend so much time True. here. You know? True. So as your as 2020 is coming up, what is it? What are the things that are worrying you or concerned like that are going to help you make your decision? Um, the say so, so pretty strong. You're not going to vote for Trump. No, I'm not. Not, not anybody but him. Yeah. Um, but what I'm starting to see, you know, I'm not one of them people like all oh, the Russians hacked our election. No, I, I, I've done some research and I follow politics. I'm yeah. a NPR head. And I, I just feel like, man, uh, so um, just watching, watching what's going on. And but I'm seeing misinformation, disinformation, disenfranchising voters. Uh, a friend of mine's on Facebook was talking about she works at the polls and yeah. she's like, it's rigged. Everything is rigged. These workers don't know what they're doing and this, that, and that. I'm like, hey, you, that need to be, uh, 
that needs to be in a on the answer line, a helpline, but not your timeline right. because that's the problem. That's what I'm, I feel like we're going to see a lot more of yeah. people just being disenfranchised and psyched out of voting by because of all the crazy by all the crazy information going back and forth. And and she and I went back on her back and forth on her post, and I'm like, you know what? This ain't helping. Yeah, this ain't helping because it's already hard enough to get people to want to vote. Yeah. Man, uh, and and I, I hope I'm wrong, but I I see him skipping along into a second term yeah. because of the the Democrats. They you know it's like nobody wants to fight with gloves on, and he gloves off and just throwing shots at people. And it's you seem I'm, you seem exhausted by. That. I am, I am, and it, you can't pick a side. Yeah. I mean, you can't pick a side, but you. Some people don't know. They don't study that into it. Oh, that's why I ain't gonna vote. I ain't voting. I ain't voting. And I'm seeing this along the lines, and I'm like, hey, they. That, from what I understand, that's their plan. To Trump's plan is to disenfranchise people to where they don't want to vote. Yeah. So that those people and his supporters, his base that they swear he's talking to every time he opens his mouth, are gonna show up in numbers and guarantee him a second term. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm exhausted and. I, I don't even think an impeachment at this time, this late in the game, yeah. with all the other stuff. Now today they're talking about. It. I'm like all that other stuff, and now all of a sudden you were. It's. I think it's just too late, and they they're they're behind the wall. I honestly, I'm point. I'm I'm exhausted by feeling like the will is poisoned, yeah. been poisoned. Because when you ask him everything, them Democrats, them Democrats, instead of being a uniter, he's just a divider and just blame everybody. Don't apologize. Don't accept anything. Just blame and point the finger the other way and give talking points and sound bites for the base to reiterate. Do you feel like that I'm sick of this is pretty common in Ohio right now? No, no. Thanks to the that blue wave of yeah. 2018. Yeah. Um, I didn't believe that until after it happened. Yeah. And I'm just hoping that that same energy is still there yeah. because it, it, it we we yeah. I, I'm just hoping that's their saving grace that a lot more people are fed up. But I, my wife and I were were talking about that the um. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't wear the red hats, yeah. <laughs> but they're still voting against their own personal interests yes. because anything resembling Obama is is no. It's yeah. like we want our country back and Trump is talking like we want him to talk. Yeah. And anything less than that is back to Obama in the third term. I feel sorry for him. So it was a comedy. It wasn't just a vote because of how Trump talks, but also a vote saying we're, we're mad that Obama won these two terms. Yeah. Right. And we couldn't get him out with the Tea Party and we couldn't get him out with, yeah. you know, after that. And it's just like, wow. It's like, how did he win a second term and he didn't promise he was going to do this and do that? And Obama was smart enough to know everything I say I'm going to do. They people are getting elected to yeah. obstruct me from doing. Now, people were elected to obstruct and not to lead and and now Trump is in there, and it's like, wait, we we I don't know what I'm doing. I, we was just supposed to stop Obama, no Obama, and I was coming home from 2016 voting for Obama, 2008, with um, I took my son, he was a baby then, to the uh, polls and got a picture, ended up on the paper too, uh, of him voting for Obama. But when I was coming back to Columbus, because I was still registered there, I was stuck in a long line, and the lady in front of me had no Obama 
on her plate. Mm. No Obama. No Obama is what it said. And I just remember being all this traffic down 71 to yeah. get here. And I remember he started crying. And I'm like, man, these people are seriously like don't like him yeah. <laughs> like but he still got elected and then he got elected again and it was like he didn't say anything he didn't say what he was gonna do he just I was like man why would he sell you everything he tell you <laughs> you just go cut him off and yeah. people getting elected to just say no Ooh, so do you, uh, uh, do you think like you don't strike me as someone who's gonna vote based on an issue it's more on the character of the person character of the person and at this stage in the game um I I just need somebody who can go toe to toe with Trump. <laughs> like I could almost care less what you're talking about. And so I mean, so you're a creative guy. Mm -hmm. You work in the creative field. Someone came to you and said, "Desmond, the voters in Ohio are tired of the poison well. Mm -hmm. How do we get them excited again?" <laughs> Create some short videos of this. This this is what's happened. This is what could happen yeah. if we keep going down this path. Um, I know they say you know what has the president ever done for you, Obama? This and the other, and um, and really they don't, but they do. And I would, uh, I would go after, I would build something around those, uh, a friend of mine's a truck driver and he yeah. was like, Hey, he's mad as hell. He voted for Trump actually. And yeah. he's black. He, um, he was like, but that tax bill, they took away a lot of our deductions, man. Yeah. And he was like, I, I'm like, Used to getting ten, writing, being able to write ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars off, and it's yeah. like we can't do none of that anymore. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I would make videos like that. Yeah. And um, let me just pop in here to say same about this sentiment. I also have a good deal of freelance income, and I also lost some critical deductions in the tax bill. And and just implore them that we how much their vote counts. I, I wrote a poem or an acronym for voting. Vote. Volunteering only time and effort. But volunteering opinion, time and effort. Vote. That's what I would build something around to and just appeal to people's common good. So hey, vote whether it counts or not, we still need you to vote. Yeah. That's what I would do. Desmond and I have both lived most of our lives in Ohio, so I asked him what he thought people outside of Ohio should know about our state. It's very diverse. Um, there are some strongholds from both sides, all three sides. And... <clears throat> But it's a nice family state uh, that <laughs> that that you could raise a family in, and I, I I would say that most about Ohio. It's a nice, it's a good place to. Yeah, it's almost. I shared my theory that because Ohio is a very diverse state, we seem more willing to work things out when we have conflict. At least, at least in a way that many of my fellow Buckeyes feel is missing in Washington. True, true, true. 
the former governor, I um, that's John Kasich. I liked him till he was starting trying to run for president, mm-hmm. speaking up, speaking out. But that just helped his on camera career. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of that, yeah, from top to bottom. And but I, I, I still think we are we are a state to be reckoned with, and we're we're not just like you know middle middle America or the West Coast or whatever out that way. We we're a unique a unique dichotomy of people. <laughs> I remember wanting to see if I could get. After seeing the results of 2016, I'm like, I wonder if I can get all of these. They were showing Ohio and all these red and blues. And I'm like, can I get that into my GPS so that I know where to I love this idea he has here, by the way, an app that lets you know if you're in a blue area or red area based on your location. That can't be too hard to code. I like the, I, li- I like Ohio. Yeah, yeah. I, I like it. I'm from here, so. Well, how do you think this went? This? Yeah. Oh, wonderfully well. A lot better than I thought it would. I want to thank Desmond again for sharing his time with us. I know we'll visit with him again over the coming year. Once again, check the show notes or follow us on Twitter for additional links and more information. And we'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks' time. Until then, and on behalf of the all-volunteer crew helping to produce this project, good times, everyone. Good times. This is Ohio 2020 is a podcast and documentary film project produced by Blue Monkey Communications, written and directed by me, Pete Brown, with production and post-production ably handled by Kevin Davison of Twittering Machine Productions. Want to be on the show and share your stories and political insights? Then head to thisisohio2020.com and click apply. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend or two about us, post about us on social media, or head to thisisohio2020.com and click Feedback, where you can record a voicemail that comes right to us. Music and sound effects in today's show may come from the websites freesound.org, incompetech.com, or podcastmusic.com, and in general is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. Additional music and interstitials by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. Until next time, I'm Pete Brown for This is Ohio 2020, wishing you and yours good times. Mm-hmm.